Thanks so much for joining us today, Senator. I wanted to first ask about the Senate clearing its third reading calendar while the House still has a number of things left to do um, and has killed a number of appropriations bills. Is the House on a completely different page when it comes to when the legislature needs to adjourn? And is the Senate trying to send a message by clearing its reading calendar that you want to wrap things up and get home? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, the House made the request for the uh, recess because of the COVID outbreak on the House side, and we agreed with that, concurred, and, and went home. Um, we had hoped to be done <clears throat> by the 26th of March. Uh, we now hope to be done by April 16th. Um, we think we're getting closer to some agreement with the House on that. Um, our effort to uh, clear our calendar is to send that message that uh, our members are ready to uh, to be done and to go home and, and get back to their uh, families and their way of life, their farming, their ranching. Uh, these are critical times of the year for them. So we're trying to get done as quickly as we can and, and uh, there's still a lot of work to be done yet for appropriations and things like that that uh, are taking a little longer than normal, but uh, we hope to be done by, have all of our work done by next uh, Friday. And uh, we may have to wait a five day period for uh, veto issues, but uh, hopefully by next Friday, we have all of our business finished between the two bodies. What are you hearing from your appropriations chairman? Is that, considering how many budgets are still left out there, is that realistic? Uh, yeah, it is. They have a plan. They can actually be finished by the 14th. Uh, with their part of it. Um, that means, you know, we have their uh, budgets. Uh, every time the house kills a budget, probably adds a day or two. Um, you know, the things they're, they're concerned about are more policy issue than they are budget issues, but, you know, they haven't taken the time yet to put it into policy, uh, what their concerns are. This wouldn't be the first time that the Senate and the House haven't quite seen eye to eye on how to approach some of these issues. I, I've been no, around for a couple. last in the future either. There's a natural uh, just kind of uh, tension between the bodies. Uh, if they, if the original uh, drafters of our constitution wanted it to be easier, they would have just had one uh, branch of government, but that, it's, that doesn't work very well in a democracy. So you have to have these two branches and, and then the, the uh, of the legislature and the governor. And so that's, it's natural to have some tension, but we're actually working closer together than it might appear. You know, and, and that's not the only tension when we're talking about balance of powers and seeing things differently that we've talked about this session. There was a lot of talk early on, um, especially in January and February, about the balance of powers between the legislative and executive branches. We haven't seen much past both the House and the Senate. Are we going to see bills addressing either the governor's powers or the Department of Health and Welfare's powers come out of both chambers before your um, goal end date of April 16th? I think you will. There's one bill that's already been signed into law that requires a health district order to uh, be approved by each county commission uh, in that uh, district. <clears throat> we think that's important. Uh, there's a Senate Bill 11 uh, 
36, which uh, deals with extreme emergencies. That's actually passed both bodies, but it was amended in the House. Uh, we have to concur in those, which we did yesterday. Uh, we will take that up and, and uh, vote on it um, later today. Uh, so I think we'll have that one done. Uh, we're going to uh, amend House Bill 135, uh, and we've done that. Uh, we'll take that up, I believe, uh, this morning. Uh, so we hope to have those done. That those 135 actually deals with ordinary or natural disasters. So I think we'll have that done. Um, there's a uh, one of the reasons that we didn't just end everything with a concurrent resolution, which we talked about doing, and there were several of them went back and forth in the first week or two, was we found out that under the current code, uh, we wouldn't qualify for the federal funds uh, to come in unless we had an actual emergency declaration in place. Uh, the new uh, codes that we're putting out there would uh, add a word as arising out of uh, that would allow for the state to continue to receive funds without actually having to, on a 30-day uh, uh, process, renew those declarations. And that's what's been going on for years. There's some emergencies related to flood and, and other uh, uh, problems in the state that we receive mon money for over a longer period of time but the emergency is actually over uh, and the new law would allow the governor to uh, receive the funds without having to continue the declarations of emergency. So we think there, we made some good progress. Is there concern that that would run afoul of federal law that the federal government might see it a little bit differently that if you don't have that in place, you can't continue to receive those federal funds? Yeah, and, and the legislation that we proposed is, is that the governor would have the right to continue the emergencies that's required to receive the funds. Uh, but we believe we've worked with Homeland Security and we've worked uh, with the governor's office and we think we've come to some uh, language that by using a rising out of that emergency, that that would then qualify us to, uh, to have the uh, federal funds coming in. Uh, the real issue that we deal with is do we have the matching funds in some cases and that does take an act of the legislature so i think we've kind of balanced it out we put a pretty light touch on it but we think we've resolved uh, a lot of the significant issues that we experienced during this extremely un unusual year of uh, 2020. You know, as you're talking about your concerns with executive branch overreach, I wanted to ask you about a, a press release that actually just came into my inbox as we were having this discussion about Republican leadership um, in, in their words, discovering immunization registry violations that um, the, the state's immunization registry doesn't necessarily allow for the collection of data on adult vaccinations. That's Can correct. you... Can, can you talk to me about your concerns about this registry that's that's been around for years? Well, the registry is uh, for children. Um, and that's the, re, you know, keeping track of uh, uh, child vaccinations. But they applied that to saying, uh, well, you aged out of being a child, but you're still getting vaccine. So you can be added to the registry. And we're basically objecting to that. We don't think that's what the... Uh, current code says, and, and that's the reason for, we wrote a letter to uh, 
directly to health and welfare and, and gave them notice of our concerns. And we also wanted the public to be aware uh, so that they're aware that their information uh, may be being collected. Now, is your proposed fix changing the code to allow for this information to be collected or do you want the department to stop entirely? We want the department to stop. Does that potentially because raise There is concern? no code authorizing them to, to collect it for adults. Does that raise concerns that medical providers won't have accurate information if people switch between healthcare systems, for example, or get one dose in one city and another dose in another city? No, it really doesn't because, you know, if you're going to your doctor, to your healthcare provider, there's going to be part of your medical record. Uh, also, the way the vaccinations for, uh, at least for COVID, is you're getting a vaccination card. Uh, I have a little yellow card that I get at the district health office uh, when I've traveled and had to get, you know, shots to do international travel. Uh, so there is a record, you know, you can, you can have that information, uh, but uh, with such a widespread vaccinating process as COVID is, re is necessitating, uh, we don't think it's right under the current laws uh, for them to actually collect that data. Yeah, something that we will continue to follow, right. certainly. Right. Um, and they haven't know, on, yet, so we don't know what their response will be. We've only had some verbal communication with them. You know, um, back to the legislature on Thursday, the Senate Local Government and Taxation Committee sent the House Income Tax Proposal to the amending order. What sort of amendments might we see, and is there any risk of the House not concurring to those? Well, there's always a risk of the House not concurring. They they don't like us messing around with their uh, tax bills. The Constitution allows them to originate uh, revenue bills, uh, but we also know that uh, the Senate has the right to amend those. Now, politically, that does go back to the tension I talked about earlier in this. Uh, and uh, so that they don't like us doing that, but we certainly have the right to do that. Uh, I think when we actually amend uh, 332, that we'll probably have an agreement uh, in place as to uh, how to amend it uh, between the two bodies. Uh, and as long as we do that, I think they'll probably be okay with the amendments. We've done that on 1136, which is the powers of the governor, uh, 135, again, powers of the governor. So we've worked together very well trying to come up with what we think are necessary and reasonable uh, amendments on very key legislation this time. And I think that that's, in fact, we met this morning, had ongoing discussions about exactly that as to how we uh, advance uh, House Bill 332 and the potential uh, tax breaks and returns that that would give to people. What kind of amendments might we expect from that? Well, I think there's some uh, questions about, you know, the brackets themselves, the uh, percentage uh, of uh, reduction in the uh, individual tax rate and corporate tax rate. Uh, there's also some discussion depending upon how much ongoing money we have, uh, potentially uh, doing some other you know, property tax relief uh, things. So I, it's, we're at that final stage of trying to to blend everything together and come up with uh, 
with a good package, which I think we will, uh, and we'll have that uh, debate and discussion next week. How about transportation funding? As we're speaking on Friday morning, the Senate Transportation Committee, of course, hasn't yet taken up the House proposal on transportation funding. What are you hearing from your caucus on their feelings on the House's proposal? Uh, we haven't actually talked about it in caucus per se. The uh, uh, Chairman Den Hartog uh, on our side has uh, given some kind of updates as, as negotiations have progressed over the last couple of weeks to caucus, but we just received their final bill uh, yesterday. Uh, it appears to be something that I personally can support, uh, but that's going to be up to each individual within our caucus. And we also have the uh, minority uh, weighing in on these issues, but we think there's a real need for infrastructure improvements. Some will be one time, uh, some will be you know ongoing, and and uh, there'll be some, at least in the form it is now, significant bonding that could occur. Uh, for the state, for state projects, which benefit both the state system and the local system because our state highways do go through uh, communities and serve you know, local communities. So we think there's benefit there uh, and funds would, would potentially be dispersed to both uh, local and to Idaho Transportation Department. All right, April 16th, I am going to mark my calendar. <laughs> Senate President Pro Tem, Chuck Winder, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Melissa.